daily news and analysis. We keep you informed and inspired. This is World Today. France opposes decoupling after economic talks with China. China and Pakistan celebrate the decade of China-Pakistan economic corridor. Chinese Defense Ministry says Japan's increasing military expansion poses significant challenges to regional and global peace. The just-concluded Australia-United States ministerial consultations raise concerns over regional peace as both countries prioritize militarization over pursuing people-centric initiatives. You are listening to Road Today, a news program with a different perspective. I'm Ge Anna in Beijing. To listen to this episode again or to catch up on previous episodes, you can download our podcast by searching Road Today. French Finance Minister Bruno Le Maire has expressed opposition to the idea of decoupling from China, asserting that he does not believe the world's second-largest economy constitutes a risk. He made remarks after Beijing and Paris concluded the nice China-France high-level economic and financial dialogue in Beijing. The two countries reached a series of consensus ranging from finance to climate change and aerospace. Chinese Vice Premier He Lifeng emphasized China's commitment to enhancing policy communication, practical cooperation, and coordination in international affairs with France. Amidst the U.S.-led de-risking trend, the dialogue between China and France seeks to counter anti-globalization efforts and bolster trade cooperation. So for more on the meeting and China-France relations, let's bring in Professor Wang Yiwei, Director of the European Studies Center at Renmin University of China. Thanks for joining us, Professor Wang. Thank you for the invitation. Uh, first of all, this is the nice high-level economic and financial dialogue between the two countries. Given the current geopolitical circumstances, how do you look at the significance of this meeting for both nations? Well, this uh, means that China-French uh, relations uh, back to the uh, normal track. Uh, uh, this is the first uh, meeting, definitely, after the Chinese uh, new government established in uh, this March. Uh, also, it's the first uh, uh, in-person in meeting uh, after the COVID. And also very important that uh, given uh, in the so-called uh, uh, China and the West, uh, China-U.S. Uh, uh, so-called decouple or de-risk uh, scenario, mm-hmm. that uh, France always highlights the uh, strategic autonomy. They will have an independent uh, foreign policy with China. Mm-hmm. Professor Wang, the two countries reached a series of consensus ranging from finance to climate change and even to aerospace. So could you please elaborate more on the outcomes of the meeting? What signals do these outcomes send out in your opinion? Uh, this means that China and the French cooperation uh, can re-engage. Uh, traditionally, it's uh, uh, you know, uh, investment trade uh, but now the France and uh, in general of the European Union uh, is pursuing for uh, due uh, transformation to digital and uh, green uh, growth. So climate change and even uh, some high uh, techni- technology uh, cooperation like aerospace and uh, low carbon uh, energy, I think is uh, uh, will be the crucial uh, to bring China and France more closely to deal with the common challenges and secret opportunities for economic growth and for innovation. Mm-hmm. Professor Wang, more on the cooperation. During President Macron's meeting with President Xi Jinping in April, the two leaders agreed to promote the From French Farm to Chinese Table initiative. We know agricultural cooperation and agri-food market access are usually a relatively sensitive area. What drives these two countries to explore cooperation in agriculture? Well, it's very interesting from the French farm to uh, the Chinese table. That means China is not just the world factory. It's also uh, the, like the dual circulation strategy indicates that China will be the uh, consumer-driven uh, economic growth. Uh, so China will be the uh, world market, not just the world factory. Mm-hmm. And this is, uh, uh, I think, a huge opportunity for France uh, to deliver uh, the cooperation. And particularly for France, uh, their comparative advantage, like agriculture, uh, they can actually, on the basis of the uh, geography and education agreement, 
which five years ago we we, we are, uh, reached the agreement between China and the European Union, mm-hmm. which France takes a very leading role. So I think this can uh, uh, encourage China and the French uh, cooperation towards the more uh, intensive and uh, new potential. Mm-hmm. And according to the joint statement, uh, the French side commits to continue guarantee a fair and non-discriminatory treatment of licensed applications from Chinese companies on the basis of the laws and regulations, including uh, those relating to the national security of both countries. Uh, what's France's attitude towards Chinese companies' participation in the 5G market according to the new announcement? Does this represent a change of policy? Well, this is very uh, crucial for uh, to test uh, whether France uh, will have a truly uh, strategic autonomy. Given that uh, the U.S. led the West uh, uh, accused so-called Huawei have a national security problem, so not uh, ban Huawei domestically in the U.S. market, but also uh, they encourage and even enforce the U.S. alliance to ban Huawei, uh, particularly in the 5G. Actually, for France, they have two dilemmas. So firstly. If they just ban Huawei, this against the, the French and the, in general the European values. You cannot target any single uh, company. You know, say uh, fair competition. This. Secondly, France. Uh, you know, they uh, used to be uh, very advanced in the digital uh, technology and economy, but now suffered a lot uh, because of they don't have the independent search engine. So the digital transformation, the need cooperation with Huawei. Otherwise, they pay a huge cost. For 5G, uh, you know, uh, building and also uh, the lack of uh, the competitor with uh, Germany and other uh, Western companies. So that's reason France try to the best to cooperate with Huawei. Uh, but at the same time, uh, the, you know, of course, they need to coordinate with U.S. and the French uh, and the European uh, regulation. Mm-hmm. Professor Wang, uh, France 24 reported that uh, during his stay in Beijing, the minister told reporters. France totally opposed to the idea of decoupling, as we mentioned in the beginning. Decoupling is an illusion, as he said. How do you understand the illusion the minister mentioned? Uh, based on what he said, how do you view the stance he represents when it comes to France-China policy in the coming period? Well, illusion, uh, I think that that's very crucial to understand, uh, because uh, really decouple with China, that means... Uh, it's impossible to replace China as a world factory. For instance, uh, it's India. India cannot replace. Uh, secondly, France, uh, in general, the European market, very depends on external. Uh, not China, but they cannot find anybody to replace China. So it's not like the U.S. Actually, the 75% of the uh, economic growth rely on the domestic market. European Union very, very much rely on the external market. And China as a work factory, this uh, difficult to be changed. So, so-called decoupling is an illusion. And also, Minister of the Economy of France recently also said that the risk is not the China risk. I think that's very also crucial. Mm-hmm. Professor Wang, a writer's article also says that China hopes France can be a stabilizer of EU-China relations. How do you look at China's expectation here? Well, definitely. Uh, France is the first uh, Western country uh, built the diplomatic relation with China. We will celebrate the 60 years anniversary uh, very soon. And secondly, France is the only permanent member of the United Nations Security Council in the, in the European Union now, after Brexit. Thirdly, uh, the Franco and the German, uh, we say, the uh, two engines for the European integration, particularly for France, is uh, political power. Mm-hmm. We know next year will mark the 60th anniversary of China-France diplomatic relations. How would you characterize the bilateral relations over the past six decades, and how will you direct the future China-France relations? I think we should uh, not forget uh, the spirit of the diplomatic uh, uh, relations. The 60 years ago, uh, uh, the France, and under the leadership of uh, General de Gaulle, Firstly, built the diplomatic relations with China, facing uh, so much press from the United States. I think that's independence, independent policy towards China and benefit of France, of course, and benefited France's role uh, in the West. So that's reason we highlight the, uh, the, uh, the diplomatic ties uh, spirit. We were also uh, 
continue that kind of spirit uh, in the facing of the uncertainty and the so-called uh, decouple de-risk. And uh, hope France can take uh, another uh, you know, new leading role to ushering of the new type of free uh, power relations with China. Thanks, Professor, for your insightful discussion on the recent developments in China-France economic cooperation and the broader context of China-EU relations. As you said, it's evident that both China and France hold a desire to enhance their comprehensive strategic partnership and strengthen economic ties amidst the challenges of decoupling and de-risking. That's Professor Wang Yiwei, Director of the European Studies Center at Renmin University of China. Stay tuned for more engaging discussions on global affairs with the world today. Hello, my name is Alessandro Golombievski Teixeira. I'm a professor of public policy management at Tsinghua University in Beijing. I am a great listener of the world today. In my opinion, the world today is one of the best China radio programs. In the world today, we can get the best news and analysis in what is happening now in the world. So please, come to join us. Hello, I am Dr. Digby James Wren, a political analyst and international relations scholar specializing in China area studies. World Today offers unmatched in-depth perspectives on China's politics, economics, business, technology and society. World Today's team of reporters and contributors provides valuable information from all of the world's major economies. I hope you can join me on World Today for the very best insights and news from China, on China and help to build a better understanding of China's role in the world today. You are listening to Road Today. China's top economic planner has unveiled 20 administrative measures to spur domestic spending at the authorities aim to expand demand and wrap up high-quality development. The National Development and Reform Commission has vowed to stabilize spending on big-ticket items, expand service consumption, boost consumption in rural areas, and optimize the overall spending environment. Meanwhile, data from the National Bureau of Statistics show that China's manufacturing PMI came in at 49.3 in July, up from 49 in the previous month. So for more on this and China's economy, our Zhao Yang spoke with Dr. Zhou Mi, a senior research fellow with the Chinese Academy of International Trade and Economic Cooperation. So, Dr. Zhou, China's manufacturing PMI came in at 49.3 in July. This is up from the previous months. So, what does this tell us about the momentum of the manufacturing sector? We know that PMI is a kind of indicator. It's not uh, only for nowadays status. It's kind of uh, expectation about the future or the judgment of the enterprises. So, although 50 p- uh, point would be the, you know, the balance uh, level, between the, the up and down, but actually the 49.3 is uh, pretty good compared with last month. So in my understanding that enterprises have better confidence on improving their stock and, and trying to put more elements in the future development of the input. This is kind of a very good signal for us to judge for the future several months. Mm. And on industrial profits, one standout is the equipment manufacturing industry, which accounts for over one third of all industry profits here in China. And now the profits of uh, equipment manufacturing rising 3.1% in the first uh, half of this year. And that's an improvement of nearly 21 percentage points versus is the first quarter. So what do you think can explain the outperformance of the equipment manufacturers? Yeah, as you mentioned that equipment is a kind of very important factors for the total manufacturing because that they are very important to produce uh, different kind of materials, not only the you know the processed the final goods, but also some of the intermediate products. So in this regard, for the market, they need to have a better understanding about the future of the, the demand if it is in the increasing trend. I mean that many uh, many equipment manufacturing will trying to put more elements to improve their uh, supply capacities to uh, this kind of requirement. So. So maybe this requirement not only coming from China's 
domestic market, but some of them are exported to other countries. I think that uh, many uh, manufacturers in the equipment uh, industry, they will uh, see uh, very better or uh, comparatively better uh, abilities from the market that they can provide more products for meet mm. those uh, demands in the market. Mm. And the biggest highlights are the car manufacturers and especially the new energy supply chains. And when we look at the uh, outperformance of the new energy vehicles, the batteries is really standing out. So how do you explain it? What are the main factors of China's uh, new energy vehicle sector's development? Yeah, it's a kind of uh, not only in China's market, but also, you know, worldwide markets. Mm-hmm. Many countries are putting more strength to support the development of uh, transform uh, from the, the traditional energy vehicles to the new energy vehicles. So to meet this uh, trend, I mean, a lot of countries are trying to compete in this area. But I, I think that Chinese companies are uh, very good at uh, in the competition, improving the efficiency of the batteries and also to to have a better support with different kind of uh, softwares and, uh, you know, something to do with uh, the, the using of those vehicles. So in this regard, we see that uh, in the past uh, about three months, uh, three years, we see many Chinese uh, EVs are exported to a uh, lot of countries. So it, it, this kind of trend are a very important one because that the world is uh, uh, needing our a lot of uh, practices, not only the promises. They must uh, try to change from the, the old ones to the new vehicles with uh, low uh, low carbon emission and uh, green development. I think that uh, China is uh, very good at that because uh, Chinese manufacturers are already very uh, prepared in these areas and they have many experiences in the past several months. And uh, actually, uh, it's a kind of systematic advantages. Mm-hmm. So it's a very important thing to meet both consumers in China and also in many other countries, including U.S. and European countries. Mm-hmm. And looking at the economic landscape, Dr. Zhou, domestic demand here in China is due in somewhat of a recovery mode, and the global economic environment is quite uncertain. So what is your outlook on the recovery path forward for China's manufacturing and the industrial profits? I believe that the recovery is still in the process. But uh, it's maybe not that quick because we still see many pressures from the market, from the international markets, uh, from the, the trend of the market development, but also from some of the protectionism. So in this regard, I think that uh, consumption, investment, and, and also the import and export are uh, both, all of them are very important pillars for the development. But if we should try to look at uh, the differences in the uh, different pillars, these should try to address the advantages and the disadvantages of all these related factors. Mm. And uh, in some regard, I believe that these pillars are affecting each other. They have to try to do something to balance that recovery between the different pillars. Mm. And talking about consumption, so what measures have already been taken to improve the domestic consumption? Actually, the NDRC has released a slew of uh, new measures to help boost the household spending. So what are they? And how will they really help to boost the consumption in the second half of this year? Uh, yeah, I agree with you that NDRC is, uh, you know, trying to do more to to have a kind of a support to the recovery of the consumption. But it's not only a, a start from nowadays. Actually, in the past several years, even in the COVID time, we see the different ministries, including MOFCOM and ONDRC, they are trying to work very hard to improve the consumption. Well, the consumption can be divided in several aspects, as we can see from this file, that uh, they started by uh, doing something to improve the traditional ways of uh, consumptions, and uh, they also trying to address some new uh, consumption. And some of the scenarios are going to be expanded or created, like for the urban uh, urban consumption and the rural consumption also, like for the new vehicles consumptions, and also trying to provide a better environment uh, like for the e-commerce. So in this regard, I think that consumption is not only uh, some kind of uh, reasons uh, coming from the expectations and the willingness of the consumers. It also needs to have a better 
you know, based from the income. So the consumers are also are, you know, uh, also the producers or, or employment. So if they have better jobs and they have better expectations about their future, they will use more money to consume the better things to improve their life. Mm. And right now, the domestic housing market seem to have a momentum to go up again, given that uh, we've seen the clear message about the efforts to do more in boosting the domestic housing. So what do you make of that? Yeah, real estate is a very important sector in Chinese economy in the past uh, maybe more than one decade. But I, I think that uh, there are a lot of uh, you know factors affecting the recovery of this uh, uh, sector. Maybe in different uh, cities, the policies are still different, and the people, especially the consumers, are not able to 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 have a fully recovered from the confidence. So I, I think that we still need more time uh, or with more patience to look at that. And uh, for the real estate, uh, for this sector. I believe it's very important because it it is not only something to do with infrastructure and also the consumption, but also you know it has many uh, relationship with uh, related manufacturing, with the uh, raw materials, with employment, and even with the international contracting market. Mm. So in this regard, I I believe that we should try to do more to stabilize the real market uh, because you know for some lessons we learn from. Uh, other countries, like in Japan, it's a uh, really bad things happen if the real estate cannot work properly as uh, you know one of the supporting pillars to the economy. Mm. And the government also pledged to invigorate the capital market and boost the investors' confidence. So, Dr. Joe, what efforts can be made on that, and how do you see the market response to it? Yeah, there are many uh, relationship with uh, you know between the capital market and the real economy. So for the capital market, it's an important place for the companies to collect more money from the different individuals or different resources. Well, for the investors, they may need some time to or the channels to put their money to gain better income and also get the profit by the development of the economy. So we should try to make a better connections between the real economy and the virtual one and uh, make a less block or barriers for the information exchange and uh, have a, a more stable expectation for the market because it's not a place for the uh, for some speculation. Uh, it's a kind of things for the investment. Mm, we've been talking about different aspects of China's economy. So what do you think are the primary economic tasks that China aims to achieve for the second half of this year? I think that in my understanding that we are trying to reach our goal of GDP growth of 5% for the whole year. But uh, I, in my understanding, it is not only about the number we want to reach 5%. It's uh, more important for us to have a better and higher quality of development. So in this regard, it's uh, not a short-term target. It will have uh, more support or connections with uh, abilities between China and other countries, and also between the you know the traditional economy and uh, the innovative or new economies. So uh, we need to to try to find out the better support to adapt ourselves in the change of the you know economy and uh, technology in this era. That was Dr. Joe Mi, a senior research fellow with the Chinese Academy of International Trade and Economic Cooperation. More to come. China and Pakistan celebrate the decade of China-Pakistan economic corridor. Chinese Defense Ministry says Japan's increasing military expansion poses significant challenges to regional and global peace. The just-concluded Australia-United States ministerial consultations raises concerns over regional stability and peace. Stay informed and stay connected with the world today. We value your opinions and questions. So be sure to interact with us on Twitter and join the conversation. It's at CGTN Radio. We'll be back after a short break.
Welcome back to Road Today with Mika Anna in Beijing. Chinese Vice Premier He Lifeng, acting as the special envoy of Chinese President Xi Jinping, is in Pakistan to attend the Decade of CPEC, or China-Pakistan Economic Corridor Celebrations. This year marked the 10th anniversary of the Belt and Road Initiative proposed by China, and also the 10th anniversary of the launch of the CPEC, a flagship of the BRI. The Chinese Foreign Ministry said China hopes that He Lifeng's visit will be an opportunity to continue to build on past achievements and upgrade the development of the CPEC. So to talk more about the flagship project of the BRI between China and Pakistan, joining us on the line is Zuna Madakan, Research Fellow with the Center for China and Globalization. Thanks for joining us, Zun. Thank you, Anna, for having me. First of all, could you please give us a brief introduction of CPAC? What are the main achievements that attracted your attention over the past 10 years? Well, Anna, firstly, I mean, I'll, I'll try to be very as brief as, uh, <laughs> as possible, but there's so much to unpack mm-hmm. here. You know, in 2013, obviously, since we are marking one decade of CPAC, 2013 is when the projects were first uh, uh, the projects were envisioned. But 2015 is when the development, the first phase of CPEC was officially announced. And this was a package, you know, transportation infrastructure, energy infrastructure, special economic zones, the port of Gwadar. I mean, this is precisely what Pakistan needed. In 2015, let's also remember that it was a phase when Pakistan was recovering from mm. an energy crisis. And there were many reasons why Pakistan was not able to receive investment in these very important sectors that were required for us to move forward. And then China comes in. And this was, I must, I think your listeners must know that for every Pakistani, this was a transformative development. We were celebrating it. And 10 years on, you know, uh, obviously the first few years, like the BRI, were about mainly hard infrastructure But then we started transitioning in 2016-17 towards understanding how to utilize the investment. So the point was obviously to attract, uh, uh, you know, businesses, factories to relocate in Pakistani infrastructure, to enable Pakistan domestically to, uh, you know, improve the quality of access we had, improving the energy infrastructure. But also there is a plan that CPEC can connect the entire region towards Central Asia, towards Iran, you know, even towards um, the Middle East and African continent. So the the vision of CPEC has always been, you know, to create synergy in the region. And if I specifically talk about the last four or five years, we have seen major development in technology transfer, in industrial, uh, you know, improvement, in industrial cooperation. There is a wide range of, you know, cultural, think tank, media cooperation as well. So if you look at in the past 10 years, how fast, how exponentially the quality of the relationship has improved, that is something really, uh, you know, inspiring, actually, if people understand it. And another very important factor is that in Pakistan, you know, obviously we are an agriculture country. So for us to improve agriculture technology means two things, obviously, to improve the yield and improve the economy, but also to improve, uh, you know, the situation of poverty. So Mm -hmm. poverty alleviation and human-centric development has become a priority for Pakistan. And CPEC is is the major, is the major inspiration for that. Despite the achievements and the positive impact of the CPEC, there have been criticisms from Western media, Mm -hmm. such as that trap narrative. How do you respond to these criticisms and what evidence supports their claims over the past 10 years? You know, it is no secret that Pakistan has been facing economic challenges, but any economist, any person, any objective economist, whether they're sitting in the Western countries, whether they're in Pakistan, China, or elsewhere, they would say that these are problems and challenges that Pakistan needs to address. We need to fundamentally improve uh, our output as a country. That requires also better education, vocational centers, uh, technology transfer. So anyone looking at the situation objectively will say that CPEC is part of the solution and it is definitely not the problem. And this is something that every political party, every stakeholder in Pakistan agrees with. Now, let's talk about the perception about CPEC and China and Pakistan. It is very positive. People see China as, you know, a brother. This is a relationship that is mutual, a sentiment that is mutual for generations. 
But on top of that, they see the developments under CPEC as changing lives. And we've seen many job opportunities. Mm-hmm. There are 26,000 students in China, Pakistani students studying, and they're taking back improved skills back to Pakistan. You also see major uh, you know, improvements in agriculture, cooperation, scientific development. So I think the debt trap conspiracy is something that was, that was being tried. They were trying to sell it to Pakistan. But, but normal Pakistanis and the government of Pakistan do know better. This is a medium to long term process. As you said, CPEC has been lauded as a story of development and cooperation. It started from infrastructure projects. Now it has already been expanded into trade, finance, education, etc. What are the concepts behind the CPEC projects, in your opinion? And I was discussing this on Pakistan television just a few hours ago. And for me, you know, the way Pakistan and and I would say many other countries in the global south, the way we are talking about human centric development. Another factor was, you know, affirmative action, going out of the way to invest in regions that are not as as even because no country is very evenly developed. There is a focus now also that, you know, in the beginning, people would talk about hard infrastructure and ports and pipelines. But today, even in Pakistan, when we talk about our development, we are talking about better quality education, better health, creating opportunities for people, creating a a, a situation for people in areas that especially need uh, to be alleviated from poverty, that people themselves can become the solution. So people-centric development is a concept that is increasingly resonating with people in Pakistan. It is also, let me add, a step away from the kind of development economics which was uh, maybe based on Western countries and their experience and their perspective. This is a step away from that because now we realize that real solutions have to be domestically, um, domestically inspired. They have to be unique for domestic situations. So now we have, you know, poverty alleviation projects. We have scholars. We have scientists, you know, making sister city or sister region um, contracts, so to speak, and really thinking what, how China has come so far. Obviously, that is a fact. And how can we learn from that? How can we apply that mindset domestically? And this is where critical thinking coming into our development journey is a very important factor. Mm-hmm. and about the vice premier's visit to Pakistan this time, uh, the CPAC industry chain cooperation platform is introduced as part of the 10th anniversary celebrations. Could you explain the goals and objectives of this platform and how it's expected to further enhance industrial cooperation between the two countries in specific sectors like new energy, smart manufacturing and the digital economy? So, uh, so this is one factor. This is a very important step forward. You know, in Pakistan, we have talked about, okay, so we have improvement in the prerequisites for improving, for a change, a major positive change in Pakistan's economy. And then, you know, in the last four years, as I mentioned, we have some companies coming together, very specific, you know, we had a lot of webinars, a lot of practical cooperation, scientific collaboration to improve industries. Now, the next step, you know, is how do we synergize that experience? Of course, every industry knows its expertise and it is the best to identify what kind of partners are ideal for them in China. But the fact that, you know, you on a countrywide level have a certain amount of resources to centralize that planning in a better way. This is what this development can achieve. And this is something that people have been realizing. The government stakeholders have been realizing. So to create synergy means that you need to have a platform, you need to have a consensus. How do we move? What are the most important industries that Pakistan needs to invest in? And how can we best, most efficiently benefit from Chinese expertise? Here, I'll also mention that, you know, Pakistani media is talking about uh, the vice premier's experience in the NDRC. And NDRC is very known in Pakistan. They also appreciate that, you know, this is someone who was part of the initial planning process in 2015. He is someone with practical expertise. It's something that Pakistani media, Pakistani people, and especially Pakistanis who are uh, more familiar with China-Pakistan cooperation are already talking about. So the Mm -hmm. expectation is that as we did in 2015, create, uh, you know, uh, there was a positive consensus on both sides what to prioritize. And now that was phase one. And now, now we've, you know, we should be moving further, faster in phase two. So this timing is very important, and there is an understanding that he has the right expertise, uh, very relevant expertise to, you know, 
push us into a better, faster phase too. Thanks, Zhuan, for sharing this valuable insights and information about the China-Pakistan economic corridor and the positive impact it has had on both countries. We look forward to seeing how the CPEC continues to shape the future of China-Pakistan cooperation. That's Zhuan Madakan, research fellow with the Center for China and Globalization. This is Road Today, your window to the road. Keep listening for more discussions right here after the break. Hi, I'm Einar Tangen, a political and economic analyst and senior fellow at the independent Taiher Institute. World Today is news without the hype and business commentary that is informed and up to date, presenting the facts and asking incisive questions. So join us if you are someone who needs to know what is happening in China as it is happening. You are listening to Road Today. The Chinese Ministry of National Defense has expressed a strong opposition to the Japanese government's description of China as the greatest strategic challenge in its 2023 defense white paper. The spokesperson noted that Japan has substantially increased defense spending and has been advancing its military expansion, posing a serious threat to regional and global peace, security and stability. The defense spokesperson also urged Japan to abandon using China's military development and activities as an excuse to deliberately exaggerate the so-called China military threat. The White Paper is the first since the Japanese government adopted a controversial new national security strategy in December, seeing as a break from Japan's post-war policy limiting the use of force to self-defense. So for more on this, joining us on the line is Dr. Rong Ying, Vice President and a Senior Research Fellow at the China Institute of International Studies. Thanks for joining us, Dr. Rong. Thank you for having me. In response to Japan's characterization of China as its greatest strategic challenge, the Chinese Ministry of National Defense expressed a strong opposition, highlighting that Japan is is the one being spending military and dangerous to the regional and world peace. Can you elaborate on specific incidents or developments that have led to these different perceptions from China and Japan? Well, you're right. I think uh, it is the first time for the Japan's National Defense White Paper to specifically mention or describe in China as the unprecedented and greatest strategic challenge for Japan. This is really an unprecedented. Uh, as we are looking at the development region, uh, in particular between China and Japan, and as we take into account that the, uh, at the political level, uh, China and Japan have uh, had a kind of understanding that should view each other as uh, opportunities and not as a threat. And... Uh, you also mentioned that uh, the uh, rise of military expenditure, military budget mm-hmm. uh, of Japan in the past, uh, actually past the decade, but the most exponential sort of growth will be in the next five years uh, when Japan's uh, budget uh, uh, per capita vis-a-vis uh, uh, the ratio vis-a-vis GDP will raise to percent and uh, in next five years it will spend I think 40 trillion Japanese yuan if that is the case Japan will be the third largest military spender mm-hmm. in the world and this is very unprecedented is very unusual uh, given in the uh, fact that Japan uh, because of the history uh, it has been adopting a so-called pacifist uh, policy, it has been very much restrained in terms of its military posture, uh, military spending, and more importantly, I think, in terms of developing its capabilities, uh, military hardware. And I, as we know that these budget rise will mostly be used to develop high cutting-edge technology, particularly in terms of the so-called uh, counter-strike capabilities. So I think from the Chinese perspective, from the perspective of the region, which has suffered from historically from Japanese aggression, has mm-hmm. always held an apprehension and awareness 
of Japan's changing or shifting uh, security posture, this is a big question mark. This is really a development that has great concern to its neighbors and to regional peace and stability. Indeed. Um, Dr. Rong, the spokesperson for the Chinese Ministry of National Defense, criticized Japan for forming targeted exclusive circles with major powers, potentially challenging regional and global peace and stability. Can you provide examples of such circles and explain how China perceives this development as a security concern? Well, I think as we discussed that Japan's security posture, military posture development, um, uh, defense budget uh, has always an issue of concern for for China, for Mm -hmm. Japan's neighbors and the region. This is largely because of the history. Uh, Untolded sufferings, atrocities uh, committed by Japanese Imperial Army uh, to the region and to actually uh, Japanese people themselves. And on the other hand, Japan has been a a military ally, a security ally with the United States. And it also, in the past few years, we have seen an intensified military uh, alliance with with the United States, with South Korea. And it's also been very much uh, active in uh, bringing uh, NATO into, uh, into Asia. So these are the, I think, developments, if we put them together, uh, would uh, add more concerns than that. Mm-hmm. And the region as a whole, as we've seen, has enjoyed peace and stability, prosperity for the past decade. And it's largely because I think the, the countries in the region share or agree that their differences, their security needs should be addressed through consultations, through dialogue but not like a kind of arm race, not like a bring a block politics, military alliance for the sake of the absolute security. That is something I think the development, that is something I think China and uh, uh, countries in the region are very much uh, concerned, are watching with really great uh, uh, wariness about this development. Mm-hmm. Now, from Chinese perspective, the Chinese Ministry of National Defense responded that Chinese military has always been a steadfast force in upholding uh, world peace and, and stability. What do you make of these remarks? Was the factual basis of such an assertion? Well, I think China has made it very clear consistently that it will, it, it will pursue a peaceful road for development. And it has always advocate and promote peaceful political settlement of differences. And China as a major, actually the largest contributor in terms of UN peace uh, cooperation uh, operations. And China has played a very important role, constructive role in recent, as we have seen recently, in bridging and help in helping uh, Iran, Saudis, and other regional providing good offices for regional uh, uh, hotspot issues. Having said that, of course, China has also made it very clear that they will resolutely uh, defend, safeguard its uh, sovereignty, territorial integrity. But the most important thing, as uh, China advocates uh, building a, a community of shared future, and uh, China's development, China's, uh, I think, military is a force for peace. And China's uh, military is aimed at, the development is aimed at maintaining peace and stability and the prosperity in the, in the region. Mm-hmm. Thanks, Dr. Rong. Uh, your insights on the recent developments between China and Japan, we appreciate your candid responses. That's Dr. Rong Ying, Vice President and a Senior Research Fellow at the China Institute of International Studies. You are listening to Road Today. Stay with us. Welcome. I'm Ilaf Elard, economics professor and member of the Data Science and AI Center at New York University, Shanghai. On the World Today program, you can find in-depth and impartial insight, as well as critical commentary on key trends in the Chinese economy, financial technology, business, and blockchain. To prepare for the world tomorrow, join me on World Today. You are listening to Road Today. 
The recently concluded Australia and United States ministerial consultations have raised concerns over regional peace, as both countries prioritize militarization over pursuing sustainable peace and regional integration. The joint statement issued by both nations highlighted enhanced force postures, defense industrial base cooperation, and maritime security dominance. Critics argue that the absence of people-centric initiatives for regional connectivity and economic resilience reflects a myopic approach. Many fear these measures could escalate tensions and jeopardize sustainable peace in the Asia-Pacific region. So to talk more about the meeting, we are joined by Professor Joseph Siracusa, Dean of Global Futures with Curtin University in Australia. Thanks for joining us, Professor. Thank you. Critics argue that the absence of people-centric initiatives for regional connectivity and economic resilience reflects a myopic approach. Uh, do you share the same concerns? Oh yeah, yeah, I do to a certain extent. Uh, keep in mind that this Osman meeting um, coincides with the conclusion of a uh, military maneuvers uh, between the United States and Australia, plus um, uh, uh, eleven other nations including the Japanese and the Germans uh, in various uh, war maneuvers uh, to, to maintain uh, stability in the region or to show Australia's combat readiness. So the Osman meeting, uh, as I say, coincides with uh, war games. And um, the Osman meeting took place in Brisbane, Australia, which is the capital of Queensland, uh, which is where all the war games are taking place in the north. Mm -hmm. And um, Secretary of State uh, Lloyd Austin and uh, sorry, Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin and Secretary of State Antony Blinken uh, promised the Americans uh, access to American advanced weapon systems, that is rocket systems coming from Lockheed, uh, promised the Americans to get them involved in uh, space wars, that is, uh, they're going to involve Australia further and further in what America plans to do in defending space or weaponizing space. And they, um, they also um, reaffirmed that America will be increasing the number of rotations of its troops in northern uh, Australia and, um, and uh, the number of visits to uh, the, the naval bases there. And, of course, keep in mind that during the entire Cold War, the United States has had uh, uh, spy bases, that is, intelligence-gathering bases, in Pine Gap and Northwest Cape in Australia, and then playing a very large role, for example, in Northwest uh, uh, northwestern Australia, the, uh, the base there was uh, designed to send uh, radio frequency signals to nuclear submarines. So, you know, they would, mm -hmm. they would know exactly, they'd be the, sort of the last order on Earth. And in Pine Gap, uh, that area was uh, uh, set aside for Americans and Australians to uh, listen to uh, Chinese and Russian um, uh, nuclear, not nuclear, but missile launches to track them. So, you know, Australia has been involved uh, you know, hand in hand with America now for about uh, 55, 60 years since the uh, the ANZUS Treaty was concluded in 1952, and so these talks today um, simply um, uh, underscore the importance uh, Australia plays uh, places in the American willingness to help Australia defend itself in its next time of troubles. Uh, some experts believe the U.S. has been persuading and pushing Australia to increase military presence. Do you think Australia really needs all this military spending? How does the public view the shift of government on military expansion? Well, in the first part of your question, I mean, uh, America ha has been pushing uh, Australia to uh, prepare itself militarily for the future. On the other hand, the Australians don't need any persuasion. <laughs> Australia regards the United States as the guarantor of its territorial integrity and sovereignty. You know, it's the, the last battle. So, you know, Australia is always willing to come on board. During mm -hmm. the Vietnam War, it jumped right into the war with the United States when nobody in NATO did. And it was involved with the United States in Gulf One and Gulf Two, and various other places. So, you know, Australia has been a willing participant in these matters. The Americans haven't had to push too much, but with the Biden administration, uh, they, they have been pushing a lot recently, particularly with the increase in American Marines, uh, American bomber jets, and that kind of thing in Australia. And America regards Australia as a very valuable piece of real estate that is uh, a place from which to uh, launch a war or defend a war, and you know, to uh, manipulate the area of the South Pacific and that kind of thing. And I'm afraid in, in the last 
five or six years, and I've been here a long, long time, uh, Australia has, tends to uh, see China as mainly a military threat, not an economic competitor or anything like that. They, they tend to think that the, 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 the greatness of the, the changes in China in the last 10, 15 years will change the balance of power permanently. And it's assumed that uh, China will use its preponderance of economic growth to uh, militarize certain portions of the Pacific or the South China Sea. So, you know, we have this. And I might also mention that uh, the, the, the meeting today confirmed uh, Australia's role in AUKUS, which we can get into. Mm-hmm. The AUKUS partnership actually has sparked a controversy due to its potential impact on the nuclear non-proliferation regime. So how do you respond to criticisms that providing Australia with nuclear submarines contradicts its historical commitment to disarmament and denuclearization? Well, look, I've been uh, following uh, uh, nuclear arms control and nuclear non-proliferation for the past 40 years. And there's no doubt in my mind that the... Uh, Australian decision to get involved or to take uh, nuclear-powered uh, technology from the United States on the one hand and Britain on the other is in violation of the spirit and letter of the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty, which is the last pillar standing in the nuclear regime. Yes, I, I believe it did violate the treaty. Now, the uh, Americans hadn't given anybody this kind of nuclear technology, that is, the nuclear propulsion technology, except the British, I think, in 1957. So then they, they kind of broke ranks here with the nuclear arm, nuclear arm, uh, nuclear non-proliferation regime. And it's very hard to break this treaty and then ask everyone to abide by it. So in a sense, uh, uh, Australia has it both ways. It, uh, propo- it purports to be a leading member of nuclear non-proliferation movements. By the same token, uh, they have taken nuclear propulsion which is in violation of the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty. So, you know, you can't have it both ways. Mm-hmm. So I, I think it's very hard to explain. On the other hand, you know, Australia is committed to uh, buy three or four nuclear-powered subs from the United States, and then after that to create some new nuclear submarines with the British technology. Of course, this requires an industrial base, which Australia Indeed. does not Thanks, have. Professor. That's Professor Joseph Siracusa. That's all the time for this edition of World Today with Mika Anna. Thank you so much for listening. Bye for now.